0: want to give love to the city that's a fact but you're gonna need help if you want to make an impact well what?
1: endowed you want to be well endowed with the edmonton community things really happen when you find that you're well endowed hi everyone welcome to the well endowed podcast brought to you by edmonton community foundation and a proud affiliate member of alberta podcast network We bring you community discourse about the amazing organizations and people who come together to make Edmonton strong. Every month, we share stories from spaces where endowments and community intersect. I'm Elizabeth Bonkink.
2: And I'm Andrew Paul. We have a great episode coming up, but before we get into the swing of things, we have a few thank yous to
1: make. That's right. We're very happy to announce the Well Endowed podcast won gold in the consumer division for Best Podcast at the Canadian Online Publishing Awards last week.
2: And we just wanted to take a minute off the top of our show to congratulate all of the winners and nominees at this year's awards, including the team at Let's Find Out, Chris Chang-Yan Phillips Edmonton History Podcast, which won silver in the consumer division for Best Podcast. We also wanted to thank all of the incredible guests who have joined us on the program over the last couple of years here. And a special shout out to our contributing producers who have helped to bring us so many great stories to the table.
1: And most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening to the show. You're the whole reason why we do this.
2: Okay, Elizabeth, what's on tap for this episode?
1: For this episode, we're excited to share an interview with Trevor Phillips. You might recognize Trevor for his thought-provoking film, Things We Don't Say About Race That Are True. As we've been exploring along with Edmonton Shift Lab, racism really is a tough topic to talk about. Luckily, Trevor has a ton of experience. He is the founding chair of the UK's Equality and Human Rights Commission and was previously the chair of the Commission for Racial Equality. He is the author of Windrush, Irresistible Rise of Multiracial Britain, and is also the co-founder of Weber Phillips Limited, a data analytics provider and consultancy. He is also a writer, broadcaster, television producer, and recipient of several honorary doctorates. But wait, there's more. He currently serves as the chairman of the Center for Talent Innovation in New York and the president of the Council of the John Lewis Partnership in the UK.
2: And there's still more, but we really want to get into this interview. Trevor coming to Edmonton on November 29th as part of the Shift Lab's international speaker series, How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race. In anticipation for his talk, our producer Lisa Pruden sat down with Trevor to talk about his thoughts on integration, the currency of outrage, and why it's important to keep having conversations about race, even if you don't always get it right.
0: Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. You'll be coming to Edmonton on November 29th to speak at the Shift Club speaker series to talk about equality and integration. And I was curious about when you're envisioning an integrated society... What does that look like to you?
3: Well, I think when people talk about integration, what they tend to get confused about is the idea that people should like each other with the notion uh, that people should have similar life chances. I think if anybody thinks about it for 30 seconds, you will know that how nice people are. Not everybody is going to like everybody else. And that's something you can't control. But what you can do something about is to try at least to make sure that everybody has similar opportunities and that they don't feel in some way disadvantaged or shortchanged by the society. And common sense, as well as real experience and real research, tells you that if there is not a sense of unfairness in the society, people tend to get on a bit better because the friction that goes with feeling that you've been you know you've been left behind or somebody else is getting a chance that you're not getting that doesn't exist so when i think of integration what i think of first is not will people share a joke and will they all like each other what i think of first is do they have similar experiences of the workplace do they have, feel that they have similar experiences of the education system do they feel that they are reasonably similarly treated by hospitals or by the police at a technical level what you would, the way to describe this is to say that life chances are similar and random with respect to race or gender uh, in this case Uh, particularly race or cultural grouping. And I think when we talk about integration, what we really mean is that the society treats everybody as though they should have similar chances at the good things that that society has available, and they run a similar risk, by the way, of falling foul of the difficulties in the society. And that's what I think integration really means.
0: That's really interesting. I don't think I've quite thought about it in the sense of that feeling of fairness. Because as uh, society changes and evolves and becomes more integrated, I think there's a risk of some groups feeling like they're they're losing out. How, how do we navigate the pa- changes in power structure such that people aren't feeling left behind or that sense of unfairness?
3: Well, look, I think the the top risk here is not so much that people feel left behind, but that there are some people who feel that they are never going to move. The expression in my circle we tend to use is the sticky floor. You know, people talk a lot about the glass ceiling when it comes to gender, but... People in different cultural and ethnic groups tend to experience a a kind of analogous phenomenon, which is that no matter how hard they try, they can never escape the bottom rung of the ladder, that their their feet are somehow glued to to the floor. So I think that the, the first thing that you have to think about in this context is... Not so much people feeling that changes are doing something negative to them, but the feeling that whatever they do, they will never get anywhere. When I first became chairman of our Commission for Racial Equality here in the United Kingdom, the thing that most surprised me was this. I, I fully expected that the people who would be most aggrieved at their experience of British society would be young men, particularly young black and Asian men, and their casus belli, you know, the thing that would really get them going would be their treatment by the police and then perhaps behind that their treatment by the education system. Interestingly, that wasn't the case at all. The people who were most aggrieved and who would come in and would weep, actually, were people who had been... Doctors for many years, but never got to the top rung here, what we call the consultant grade, or um, university lecturers who had been teaching for years and years and years, but knew that they would never reach professors, or lawyers who knew that they would never become the top rank Queen's Counsel, and it was interesting because these were people who felt that they had done everything that the society asked asked of them, but that they would never reap the rewards of their diligence or their talent or realize their ambitions. So I would always say that the first thing to do is to concern yourself with those groups of people who feel that no matter what happens, they'll never ever be able to uh, leave the bottom floor. Um, And then subsequently there's another separate issue, which of course has arisen very strongly here in the United Kingdom and in Europe, and to some extent in the United States, which is that there are groups of people, some of whom, by the way, are not minority groups, they're not cultural or ethnic minority groups, but they are white, who think that changes in the society, economic changes and cultural changes, are somehow leaving them behind here is a very good example of people who don't have the skills or the capabilities to do well uh, in a service based economy in, in the united kingdom we're talking about people whose parents and grandparents worked in factories or as skilled mechanics or something like that for whose uh, whose talents and capabilities technology has now to some extent made redundant And these are people who feel left behind and i think the remedy there is something a little different but what we do know is that it is increasingly their grievance or their disgruntlement is increasingly expressed in ethnic or cultural terms because they will say we've been here for centuries and nobody's paying attention to us but new immigrants people of color everybody thinks about them and their needs, but nobody thinks of us. And that's a very sharp and very potent division that's arising in European society right now.
0: Absolutely. And I think we do see, we certainly see it in the US and we're starting to see shades of it here in Canada as well. So I think, yeah, it's going to be an interesting thing to navigate as a society. And I'm... I'm curious about how we're going to do, actually.
3: The the first thing, to be absolutely frank, is simply to acknowledge it. Um, I I think one of the mistakes uh, that we've made here, and you'll hear me talk a lot about the mistakes we've made, because we've made an awful lot of them, is to pretend that this isn't true, uh, and that actually everybody faces the same thing, and the disgruntlements or grievances have no relationship to cultural or ethnic grouping. Interestingly, uh, there's a book which is just about to be published here actually by a Canadian academic called Eric Kaufman, who teaches here at uh, one of the London universities, which is called White Shift, which deals with specifically this point, the the feeling of grievance or disgruntlement amongst the white majority, not because they hate people of color, but because they feel that the society overall, in paying attention to the needs of minorities, to which they don't really object, but they think that, in a sense, things have now got to a place where nobody's remembering that they too might suffer dislocation or disruption or disappointment. And I think Eric's book has a lot of really important things to say about all of this and will no doubt cause a great deal of controversy. But I think it's the first thing, if you want to tackle this, is simply to acknowledge that it is an issue because uh, I think the thing that really upsets that group of people is the feeling that they cannot express their sense of, disruption or loss without being thought to be anti-people of colour.
0: Actually, that takes me to uh, another idea I wanted to speak with you about, regarding things like controversy and speaking up about one's, uh, I guess, political ideas or beliefs. We, we're in a culture currently that it feels like it's a bit of an outrage culture. And it's hard, ah. it's hard to speak out, uh, whether you're speaking up, for yourself or up for uh, someone you're trying to be an ally for or with there's there's such a risk to get it wrong <laughs> and yet <laughs> and yet these conversations are too important to shut down um, yeah. I'm, I'm having trouble getting to the question of it, but do you do you have any thoughts or ideas around uh, how how we can speak publicly with each other?
3: This is terribly difficult, and I fully understand exactly first of all what you're asking about, also, but also why it's so difficult to articulate it, because it isn't just purely a matter of free speech, though some people like to express it in those terms. I think that there are several things going on here. First of all, th- there is, to be honest, some pure political manipulation here, in which People tend to use the currency of outrage, if I can put it that way, as a way of winning battles, which are really about something quite different, you know. We are seeing it very, very uh, vividly in the United States. Uh, You know, whatever one feels about who was right or wrong or who was more or less credible in the... Kavanaugh controversy over the appointment or the confirmation of uh, Brett Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court Justice, there's no doubt that the the currency of outrage on both sides of that particular divide was being used for political reasons, completely separate from, if you like, the, the central issue here, which is about the boundaries of acceptable behavior, how one talks about those, how you weigh evidence, and so on. So I think a lot of the problem here is that the simulation of outrage tends to cloud uh, the capacity to have a proper discussion. But even if you take that aside, on certain issues, I think We do have a difficulty in that we haven't really got great language and also people are anxious about how they will be heard. They know what they want to say, but they worry from real experience that what will be heard is something a bit different. And this is particularly true when you come to issues of race where i i feel that people become less generous so a very simple example here in here in the uk quite a long time ago we sort of stopped using the word colored to describe people who are not white because it, you know in our, in our culture it, it acquired a sort of sense of a slightly patronizing uh, idea Now, the problem with that is that for a lot of rather elderly people, colored was possibly the most polite way to describe somebody who was not white. You end up with this sort of slightly edgy and nervous kind of conversation, in which people say, am I allowed to use that word? Or how will it be taken? I don't mean it in a negative way, but it might be taken negatively and so on. So one of the first things I think that we have to be able to do is to be more open and more generous and be able to say to people, I don't like that word or that way of addressing me. I'd prefer you to say this or to say that. And we have to be able to say that with, I suppose, a belief in our hearts that the person who's using that word isn't doing it particularly to offend us. It may simply be because they don't have the same sensibility, but the the more we shrink from having an open conversation, the harder it is to establish rules about how we address each other and what is, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable and how are things taken. So I, I'm a believer in more open conversation and that then places a big responsibility on uh, community leaders to lead, by example, and to be both open and also generous in their speech. So uh, I think the answer to your question is that this is where leadership, particularly by those in political office, but not exclusively so, I'm also talking about teachers, I'm talking about you know, religious leaders and so on, to display both the qualities of courage and also generosity in dialogue. Uh, otherwise, actually, uh, I think what will happen over time is that people will shrink away from having courageous and open conversations, and when that happens, what we tend to do is to retreat into our own groups, into our own ghettos, and that's the worst possible outcome, because you then end up with you know, groups of people who are separated by race or culture kind of eyeing each other suspiciously over the fence and completely unable to talk to each other. And that, that's a terrible place to be.
0: As we're coming close to the end of our time, I'm just wondering if there are any ideas or topics that you were hoping that we'd get to that we didn't quite, anything you wanted to add?
3: There are two things that I'm very keen to learn from my time in Edmonton. First of all, we're not so familiar here with the issue of how indigenous or First Nation people are regarded and also how they acquire a voice in the wider society. that That is not an issue that really arises, certainly not in the UK or in most of Europe. But I think it's an interesting and important question because in a world where... You know, they used to say, it's the economy, stupid, but we now tend to believe it's identity uh, that really matters. I think a good resolution of that question should have lessons for every society about how you preserve identity, but manage to um, make it work in a multi-ethnic or multi tradition kind of uh, situation. So that's a very important question for me, which I hope to learn something about. And the second thing, which is, I think, perhaps the sharpest dilemma here in Europe, is how you deal with the fact that different traditions have different ideas uh, about some central values. So, for example, uh, the largest significant minority across Europe is now increasingly a Muslim minority. And for mainstream Muslims, the view about how you manage your family relations, and in particular how you manage gender relations and the status of women, is not the same as uh, the as if what you might call the modern majority in Europe. And this is a very serious sticking point. Do you say that in Muslim communities, because this is part of their tradition, you have to accept that, for example, a woman's word in a court might not carry the same weight as a man's, because that is what, if you like, the mainstream of Muslim opinion is? Or do you say, in the society as a whole, that is a, a kind of a fundamental value, and it does not matter who you are, where you are, what group you belong to. It must be held to be true. And if you do, if you say the latter, are you then somehow denigrating that group's identity? Now, this is a very tough and difficult question, uh, and full disclosure, I'm pretty clear on this myself, and I have been clear on it. I believe the latter. I don't think that there, is any, there should be any hiding place from these fundamental uh, propositions. But I'm, I perfectly understand that not everybody agrees with me about that, so part of what I'm very interested in is how Canadians uh, are re- trying to resolve some of these questions.
0: I'm also very excited to to hear more about that as well. Um especially with the latter. I I wonder this is my own Canadian stereotype of of our own culture. Uh we're we're very polite anyway. And I think sometimes we uh we can be somewhat passive aggressive about everyday facts, never mind facts about um <laughs> <laughs> groups of people. So so it is interesting um how how do we speak truth about data that we have while also keeping it nuanced enough because I think I I had watched your film that you made uh, talking about the things we don't say about race that are true and Uh and I remember feeling at the end of it like I agree that absolutely we should be able to acknowledge these things but I am worried and deeply concerned about using data as a broad brush, or to almost weaponize against particular groups, so yep, so to yeah, have yeah. further fuel to, of course, we should marginalize you. Look at all of this data.
3: This is not a trivial question at all. I, I uh, well, I, you've watched the film, so you, so you know where I stand. But I do not, for one second, imagine that you know my view on it is, uh, if you like, absolute, completely correct, and unchallengeable. Uh, or uncontestable, and in fact, it has pretty seriously been contested. But I think, what I think at heart is that whatever we as a society eventually conclude, we have to conclude something. And at the moment, the tendency to say, uh, you know, let's not address this, let's not worry too much about it, we don't need to think about it, is creating uh, what you said, the sort of passive-aggressive, uh, uneasy atmosphere at its, you know, at its mildest. And at its worse. actually it is leading to the masking of some very, very unpleasant uh, situations and, and behaviours. So my feeling is that at some, some way, somehow, we have to debate and resolve these questions, but I could not agree more that it is very uncomfortable to do so. But, you know, at one level, that's, I guess, why people like me have to exist to annoy everybody into making some decisions.
0: Just before we close, sir, I do want to say in in reading and watching your work and how you speak about issues of race. I. I really appreciate the journey that you go on and that you're okay to say, yeah, 10 years ago we thought this and maybe that wasn't the way to go and it's almost um, like a a walking example of that to come to the table to talk about social justice, we're not always going to get it right but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it.
3: Well, you know, I'm a scientist by background and um, my general sort of approach to anything is... To say I've got, a, I know I've got a theory. I'm pretty clear about what I think is supposed to work, but oh, there's a whole set of things going on over there which are not predicted by my theory. They're just wrong. Now I've gone and I've looked and I've checked and I've you know turned it upside down, and my data isn't wrong. So there must be something not quite right about my theory. So I need to go back to. Maybe not go back to the drawing board, but I need to think again about my set of assumptions and at, le- at the very least adjust them a bit. I, I think one of the great weaknesses of, of politics, certainly here, is that people, when they're confronted with something that doesn't quite fit their theory, what they tend to do is to shout very loudly in the hope that the, the reality changes, rather than thinking, okay, you know, I'm not magic, I haven't seen everything, I don't know everything. Maybe it's time for me to just tweak what I believe to get a better handle on that reality. But you know, that's what I, to me that's what these conversations are about, for us all to get to a, a place where what we think accords with the reality. That doesn't mean you have to accept the reality It sometimes means that you're even more determined to change it. But at least you have to start with what is rather than what you would like to imagine it is.
0: Well, Trevor, thank you so much for uh, taking the time with us and for speaking with me this morning. Uh, I I very much enjoyed that conversation
1: and and learned quite a bit.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you, Lisa.
1: A big thank you to Trevor Phillips for sharing his time and ideas with us. Trevor will be here in Edmonton on November 29th to present his talk Equality and Integration, Why We Can't Afford to Fail. The event will take place at the Quarter Note Hotel on Jasper Ave at 7pm. Tickets are available on Eventbrite. Check our show notes for the links to the tickets. We'll also have a link to Trevor's film, Things We Don't Say About Race That Are True, and to more information about Trevor Phillips himself. You can find our notes for this episode at the thewellendowedpodcast.com.
2: And that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it.
1: And if you did, please share this episode with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes.
2: Leaving a review is a big help, and we always appreciate your feedback.
1: Thanks for hanging out with us. We've been your hosts, Elizabeth Bonkink.
2: And Andrew Paul. Until next time.